Well, good evening. A few years ago, I got a recall notice for my Jeep Liberty. It indicated that there could be a very serious problem with it if I continued to drive it. In bold letters, these were the words on the warning. A fracture of the rear lower control arm may result in a loss of vehicle control and may lead to a vehicle crash. Now, you would think that once I got that notice in the mail that I would drop everything and rush out to a service station and have it checked. But I didn't do that. Um, I just don't like the fact I put so much time into my vehicles already. You got to get the, the inspection stickers on them and the tags have to be up to date and I'm always changing the oil and I'm always fixing this or that and then, and then some mistake the car maker makes and I've got to be the one to suffer. I've got to waste my time to go take care of this thing. So I didn't, I didn't do it. I figured, well, surely it won't be my vehicle that anything happens to, and then I forgot. I just completely forgot about it. I, I mean, I think it was probably in the back of my mind somewhere, but I didn't do anything about it. Some time passed. One day I was driving in downtown Morgantown in the South Park area of the downtown when suddenly I heard this metallic snapping noise. I mean, it literally sounded like a, a metal rubber band broke. And then the car started kind of drifting a little sideways, and I realized that the steering wheel had a, real, a lot of play in it. And so when I turned the steering wheel to the left, the car didn't turn left, it drifted left. And when I turned it to the right, it would kind of drift to the right, you know. Now, I don't want to say a normal person, but <laughs> a normal person would probably park the thing and call somebody to come and have it towed. You know, that just would be the sensible, maybe not normal, but at least the sensible thing to do. You, you shouldn't drive the thing, but I, I was busy that day. I had a lot to do. I didn't want to be waiting for an hour with nothing to do, waiting for this tow truck to come. And so I thought if I could just get the car home, then I could be working at home while the truck is coming and I won't waste so much time. And so I decided to drive it home. I put on the emergency blinkers. I was driving about 20 miles per hour, taking all the back streets. And I was kind of, I mean, it's like, it felt like I was floating long, you know, back and forth, you know. I eventually hit the Grafton Road. Some of you know as you head south on the Grafton Road past the Walmart there that the speed limit is supposed to be 55. I became that guy. Now, you don't want to be behind, you know, I was, I was that guy, you know, holding up all the traffic here, you know. I sped up a little bit, but I finally made it home. And, and I didn't have any accidents. I called the tow truck place. They took it to a service station. It was fixed, quite expensive, but I sent the, the bill to Jeep, and they actually paid for the whole thing. I think they were uh, thrilled by the fact that I didn't die in the process. But I have wondered before, why, why when I was presented with such a significant problem or need, did I not do something? I mean, this was a significant problem. This is, this is like a need. This is something that should have been taken care of. It's something that should have really weighed on, on my, my heart or whatever, and I should have then done something about it, but I didn't. I was exposed to the danger involved, and I just said, eh, I'll just take a chance here, you know. 
I think it's foolish. And I think that sometimes I've done that with other things too. I think that sometimes I have a tendency, for example, to minimize how bad something is. You know, I, then I don't have to do anything. Like I know I should perhaps have a conversation with someone, but I, I talk myself out of it. It's really not that bad. I think I could just let this thing go. Or I will hear about a situation where somebody is facing a, a, some kind of a crisis, but I won't be as moved as I should be by that crisis or by that need or by that problem. And I wonder why is it sometimes I'm just not impacted like I should be? Because I, I want to make the point th this evening that if we're not impacted by things that we won't make an impact. If things do not impact us properly, we won't do anything about it which is what happened with my car until it was almost too late. Now, I think there are reasons why we don't respond to, especially the needs that we face. I think all of us are busy, and sometimes busyness is the problem. I think also, we live in a world in which we're exposed to stuff all the time, and it's just kind of hard to care about everything. I'll hear about the wildfires in California burning 400 square miles of of forests, and I'll think, well, good thing I don't live in California, you know? It's just hard to be concerned. I'll read about some tragedy that takes place over in Pakistan or, or some flooding or something, and I, I realize that sometimes my heart just doesn't, just doesn't care. And I think that that is a problem. I mean, I think we're exposed to so many things that we get callous. It's just so much is going wrong. If you, if you took it all to heart, you'd be a mess. At the same time, it seems to me that we should be the kind of people whose hearts are moved by the things that we experience around us. The kind of people that Jesus talked about when he said, we need to be people who weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And yet I confess sometimes I'm not, I'm not that person. Well, today we're going to look at a story who, of somebody who was impacted by what he heard. He heard some, some bad news, and because he was impacted by it, because it impacted him so much, he decided to become an impact player. He decided to do something about what impacted him. Because again, this is, I think, important, because if things don't impact us, I don't think we will make an impact. I don't think we'll do anything about it. The person we're going to talk about is Nehemiah. Now, if you've been with us the last several weeks, we've been looking at stories of various people from the Old Testament. They were ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary things, or they were ordinary people who accomplished extraordinary things. In the case of Nehemiah, I would say that he was probably extraordinary as a person. He wasn't just ordinary. As our story begins, he was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, which, as we'll see in a minute, was a very influential position. But he was somebody that heard news about something and then was willing to do something about it. Now, before we jump into this story, I need to give a little bit of background to understand why Nehemiah cared about this, why he responded to the news that he heard. And the Old Testament, we read that God constantly was trying to get a, the attention of the people of Israel to turn away from idols and to serve God. 
That was the, really the number one command. You, you know, even with the Ten Commandments, the, the greatest one was have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Don't make any idols. Don't worship other idols. And God had warned them, if you, if you worship other idols, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send trouble your way. Trouble would take the form of pestilence, or, or the crops would fail, or he would send other countries in to attack the nation of Israel. Well, the people of Israel continually didn't listen. God sent prophets to them, tried to win their hearts back. They would not turn to God. And so in 722 B.C., about 700 years before Jesus was born, God allowed the Assyrians to come in and kill or take captive most of Israel. At this time, in 722 B.C., there was a northern part of Israel and a southern part. And the northern part included 10 family lines of Israel. Many of you know that there were 12 family lines of Israel. But 10 of them were considered to be in the north. And the Assyrians attacked the north. They killed most of the people and they exiled the rest. Now, you would have thought after this happened that the people then who were in the south... The two family lines, or as they were called, the two tribes that remained, Judah and Benjamin, would have watched themselves to make sure that they didn't suffer the same fate as their northern neighbors. And for a period of time, they were faithful to God, but they kept going back and forth, and then eventually they turned completely away from God, and so God sent the Babylonians to attack Israel. And the Babylonians attacked Israel on at least three occasions, and the third time they destroyed everything. They destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. After that first attack, though, many people were brought to Babylon. They were exiled to Babylon, and God had made a promise to them. And this was the promise that after 70 years of being exiled to the Babylonians, after 70 years, I'm going to let you return. I'm going to open the door for you to return back to Jerusalem and to begin establishing a country again. And so that's what happened prior to the story we're going to look at here today. A group of Israelites had moved back to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple, and they were doing fine. Now, at the time our story begins, Nehemiah, who's the, really the star of our story tonight, Nehemiah lived in the capital city of Susa. He had not been one of those who moved. And he had some visitors. And the visitors gave him kind of an update of what was going on in Jerusalem. Now, with all that in mind, I want to give you just a quick timeline then. Just summarize the timeline. 722 B.C., Assyrians defeat and exile northern Israel. In 605 B.C., about 100 years later, the Babylonians attacked the southern Israel for the first time. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians attacked again and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. 538 B.C., the temple restoration began under Zerubbabel as a leader. 478 B.C. to 464 was the story we looked at last week involving Esther who was the queen to the king of Persia. Our story begins 20 years later, 20 years after Esther was off the scene, we come across this guy named Nehemiah, who was living in the capital city. 
Let's begin reading the story in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, where we read the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress of the city of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived with some men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. Now let me stop for a moment. Nehemiah is in the capital city, the same city where Esther had been 20 years earlier. He's serving in this capacity as a cupbearer to the king. The king at this time was a guy named Artaxerxes, and Nehemiah was about 40 years old. His job, though, was kind of interesting. According to a scholar by the name of Williamson, royal cupbearers in antiquity, in addition to their skill in selecting and servicing, or serving wine, and their duty in tasting it as proof against poison, were also expected to be convivial. Now, I'll define that word in a minute. And tactful companions to the kings. Being much in his confidence, they could thus wield considerable influence by way of informal counsel and discussion. The word convivial means fond of feasting, drinking, and socializing. Fond of drinking, feasting, and socializing. This was one of the requirements for Nehemiah. Now you say, what? He had to be happy. That was the point. The king did not want someone serving him who was, pardon the expression, but a Debbie Downer. Sorry if your name is Debbie. Wanted somebody that was joyful and happy and sociable and someone who would stand there and Maybe make the king laugh, I don't know, but he'd also be someone who would, of course, taste the wine and make sure no one had poisoned it because you'd die first and then the king would know it had been poisoned. It was part of the job. It was someone who provided counsel, though, to the king. It was a very trusted position. And we don't know how, but Nehemiah ended up in this position, most likely because he was probably part of a royal family from Israel. And there he was. And he's serving in the kingdom in the months of November and December in our calendar. You see, the palace of Susa was the winter palace for the kings of Persia. They had a summer palace as well, but this is taking place in the wintertime. And so Nehemiah is doing his job as the cupbearer to the king when some visitors come from Jerusalem. And among the visitors is his brother, a guy named Hanani. And he says, how are things going? And the report wasn't very good. In verse 3 again, it said, They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. It wasn't going well at all. Now, let me ask you, how would you, if you were Nehemiah, how would you respond to that news? Would you say, well, that's... You know, that's Jerusalem. I'm here. Things are fine with me. How would you be impacted by it? I was trying to think what it might be like in our culture 
to hear this news? What, what would happen in our world that would help us understand Nehemiah's response? Because as we're going to see in a minute, when he heard about this, he prayed and fasted for four months. He was broken up over this thing. And maybe what would come to my mind is, is what if America were taken over by some foreign country and everything was destroyed, the capital had been burned down and, and, and the country was a mess and you found yourself now serving in this other country. And then some visitors came from America, ones who had been allowed to return and you said, how are things going? And their response, if it were something like the capital is still in ruins, the mountain lair is still destroyed, <laughs> university's not working anymore, everybody's discouraged, everybody's depressed. How, how, would, how would that make you feel? Nehemiah's response is found in the next verse. He writes, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now again, we know from the first part of chapter two that he fasted and prayed off and on for four months. I said, Nehemiah writes, Yahweh God of heaven, which is the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man at the time I was the king's cupbearer. Toward the end there, what is he praying? He's saying, Lord, give me grace today because I'm going to be standing in the presence of the king. And he clearly had in his mind that the thing that was so impacting him, he wanted to share with the king. I pray, Lord, you give me favor in his eyes. I pray, God, that you open the door. Now, nothing happened initially. Some time would pass. One of the things I like about this story, though, so far, at least what we've read, is the model of prayer that Nehemiah gives us in this section. I hope when you read the Bible and you read about some of the famous people in the Bible and you read about their prayers, you learn some lessons about how to pray. Nehemiah included... A lot of the elements of prayer that I've talked about before using the acrostic ACTS, A-C-T-S, where every letter stands for something. Nehemiah began with adoration. That's the A in the word ACTS. If you look again at verse 5, he said, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. He starts with 
just telling God how amazing he is. You're a gracious God, you're the God of heaven, you're awe-inspiring, you're a wonderful God. That's expressing awe, and I think it should be part of our prayers. Now, you wonder, why do we need to express awe in our prayers? Is it as is, is though God has a, a low sense of self-worth and he needs everyone to kind of boost his ego? I mean, is that why we give out adoration? We need to tell God how good he is so that he feels better? No, that's not why we, we pray with adoration. I think the reason we do it is for our sake. It's a reminder as you begin to pray prayers of adoration, you are reminded who your God is. Oftentimes when I'm praying with adoration or including adoration in my prayers, it'll be something along the lines of, dear God, you are gracious and compassionate. You are slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. These were words that God shared directly with Moses about who he was and what he was like. And I'll add things like, Lord, you, you are so merciful and you are so kind and you're so holy and you are so righteous and you are so just and I'm so grateful that you can't sin. It would scare me, Lord, if you could sin. And then I might throw in some of the attributes of God related to what he's like in terms of his physicality, if I could call it that. Lord, you're all present. I love the fact you're everywhere, so you're here with me now, and you're all-knowing, you know, and, and you're all-wise, and you're all-powerful, and nothing is too difficult for you. When we bring out adoration with our God as we're spelling out these things, it's a reminder to the person to whom we're praying as we later on bring our requests. If I'm going to ask God for wisdom, it's important to recognize at the front end here that he's the God of all wisdom. If I'm going to ask him for strength down here, it's important to acknowledge at the front end. Now, besides that, I think it just brings joy to God's heart, just like any time someone expresses adoration to another person. If you tell your spouse, for example, I love you, you are so wonderful, you are so smart, you, you do all, you know, who doesn't like that, you know? express some kind of adoration. Well, that's how Nehemiah started his prayer, and a lot of the great prayers in the Bible begin with A, adoration. The C is confession, though, and Nehemiah immediately moved into confession in verse 6. He said, I confess the sins we've committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses, confession is an important part of prayer because it deals with the things that come between you and God. There have been times before where I just sense, you know, so it just seems like something isn't right between me and you, God. What is it? And I'll, I'll remember that there's something I just haven't dealt with over here. It's just like any relationship. If there's an offense that you've committed against someone else, it's kind of hard to move on until you deal with the offense, Right? Till you come back to that person and you acknowledge what I did was wrong, what I said was wrong. And then you experience forgiveness from that person and the relationship is restored. And that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He didn't say just the Israelites of the past sinned against you. I and my father's house have. And I don't know with all the specific sins he had in mind except that he's saying, I, we haven't been doing a good job of following your commands. Now, the T in this acrostic, Acts, stands for thanksgiving. 
And Nehemiah doesn't really include overtly thanksgiving, although he does remind God of the promise he made that if people turn back to him, they'd be restored back to Israel. And I think it's a kind of a, a hint of thanksgiving when he reminds God, you've done that. Thanksgiving is different than adoration because thanksgiving is when we thank God for specific things he's done for us. Thank you for answering this prayer. Thank you for providing for my needs here. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. It's expressing gratitude to God for the things he's done for us. And then the S is supplication, specific request that we make. In verse 11 again, he said, Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant, which is me, success today, he's saying. And have compassion on me in the presence of this man, this king. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, again, some time would pass before he would actually say anything. It's what happened in the beginning of the next chapter. But his prayer reflects the fact that he was impacted by this news profoundly. And he prayed desperately to God, and then he had in his mind to do something about it. He was impacted, and he was going to make an impact. Now, I find it remarkable that he was this way because of his circumstance. I agree with what Dr. Wearsby writes about this. He says, Nehemiah was immediately burdened for his city. The fact that he was more than 700 miles away made no difference. Nor did it matter that he was enjoying luxury and prestige in the palace of the king. He did not say the city's plight is not my fault. Immediately his heart was touched and he wanted to do something to save his city. For four months he wept and prayed. You know the question is how do we get a heart like that? That is so, so impacted the way his was that he was willing to pray like this and fast like this. Now, we fast forward the story, and in our calendar, what takes place at the beginning of chapter 2 happens in March or April, early April, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence so the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression. I was overwhelmed with fear. Let me stop for a moment. It's kind of a little bit of a mystery here. So he indicates, Nehemiah indicates that up to this point, he went to work and didn't reveal that he was sad, that he was brokenhearted. He never let the king know except on this day. Now, whether he did it deliberately or whether he couldn't hold it back any longer, I don't know. But the king says, you're not sick, but you seem sad. I think you're depressed. And then it says that Nehemiah, when the king said that, was scared to death. Why was he scared to death? Well, as I mentioned earlier, part of his job is to be a happy person. Last week I mentioned that when we were talking about Mordecai and Esther, how Mordecai, when he was wearing these clothes, the clothes of mourning, sackcloth and ashes, he was not allowed to enter through the king's gate. 
There was something about the kings of Persia. They just didn't like sadness. They didn't, they didn't want anyone in their presence that would bring them down. And so Nehemiah's standing there, and part of his job description is be happy and make the king happy, and he's sad. And he's scared to death. He says, I was overwhelmed with fear. And then we continue reading in verse 3. And I replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king. It's like he shot up a quick prayer. Have you done that before? Like you're talking to someone? It's like, okay, Lord, help, you know. He quickly prayed, you know. The king asked him, what do you want? He quickly prayed. And then he said, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Now, if you continue reading the rest of the book, which we're not going to do tonight, we're just looking at these couple opening chapters You'll read how Nehemiah asked permission from the king to travel to Judah and be given papers that would allow him to have safety the whole way. In addition, he asked the king for materials. He asked the king for papers to take to the, the guy that was in charge of the king's forest, saying, I need lumber, I need wood, I want to rebuild the city walls of the entire city of Jerusalem and... I need wood to build my own house there, which is pretty bold what he was asking for. And then as you read, he made his way on the long trip, 700 miles to Judah. He eventually rallied people together. They began to build the city walls. Along the way, he faced a lot of opposition. Opposition from outside the city. The enemies didn't want this to happen. Opposition from within the city but he kept building, and he was a great leader. And in time, the story ends on a good note, the entire city or the wall around the city was completely rebuilt. God had used this guy to make a huge difference for the nation of Israel. But it all started with this idea that he was impacted first. I love, by the way, Nehemiah's interpretation of the king's response in verse 8 says the king granted my request for I was graciously strengthened by my God now why aren't we impacted more because I'm convinced again that unless we're impacted we're not going to make an impact well by way of application let me suggest some ways that I think our heart could be engaged how our heart could be moved by the things we face first of all Number one is I think if you draw close to God, you'll get the heart of God. Draw close to God and you'll see what his heart is like. Oftentimes I think the reason we don't care is because we're not close to God. But when you develop your relationship with God and you stand close to him, the things that are on his heart will be the things that will become things on your heart. And perhaps that's the reason why we don't really have the heart of God concerning the needs around us because we're not close to God. Second, pray about it. Ask God to help you. I don't know about you, but I want to care. And so many times my prayer has been, Lord, I just pray you burden me with this thing. Lord, give me a heart to want to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, I need you to change my heart. Our God is able to do that. 
And so maybe praying and asking God to do that. Third, take opportunities to meet the needs of other people. Why do I say this? Well, sometimes I think we wait until we feel a burden to help, and then we serve. But I have found many times when we take the opportunities first, when we are exposed to a need and we say, I'm going to help out, God changes our heart. Did you begin to serve someone or you get involved with another person? Your heart opens up toward that person. And so many times God actually uses your serving. This is part of the reason, by the way, we have that serving board out there and we encourage people to get involved in serving. It's not just that we have needs around the church, like we're trying to fill slots or something. We're convinced it changes us, makes a difference in our lives. Take opportunities. And finally, I want to encourage you to ask for wisdom of God. The reason I say this one is that the needs are everywhere. And sometimes we don't know whether to help out with a need. When you see somebody, for example, begging for money on a street corner, it's hard to know if it's a legitimate need or not, isn't it? I don't know if it's for real. I don't know what they're going to use it for many times. Or oftentimes we're exposed to various needs, and, and the question is, should I get involved or shouldn't I? Because the needs are endless. Well, here's where I think it takes wisdom. To become people who say, Lord, give me wisdom to know when to help and when not to. Give me wisdom to know when you want me to be the impact player here and when I shouldn't be. Now, I think all of this matters, and I close with this thought. I think all of this matters because as God's people, we need to be people who care. And I think the world is looking at the church, and many times it concludes the church doesn't know how to love or the church, God's people don't care, but what if we had a reputation of, of being ones who cared, ones who were really moved by the needs around us? I suspect people would be flocking in to not only become part of what God is doing in our midst, but to find our God, to learn about the God that we serve, who motivates us to do good for other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Nehemiah. And Lord, we want to follow his example. We confess that many times our hearts are cold to the needs around us. We're just not impacted by the things that we're exposed to, and yet we want to be. We want to be ones who have tender hearts, that when someone suffers, we're willing to suffer with them. We weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Give us the grace to really enter into the lives of other people, that we might be impacted inside so that we might make an impact. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.